Welcome to Work, Rest, Slay, the monthly podcast for the Image Business Club. My name is Melanie Morris and I'm contributing editor at Image Media. If you've been listening to previous pods, you'll know our aim with these recordings is to extract the skills, the learnings and the stories behind some of Ireland's most interesting women in business. Today, I had the pleasure of chatting with Europe's first female ombudsman, our very own Emily O'Reilly. A former journalist of considerable note, a mother of five, and an incredibly articulate, accomplished individual, Emily is the perfect blend of intelligence and tenacity who faces life head-on, bringing reality, honesty, and integrity to all that she does. Today, Emily talks about her career path, her fear of flying, parental guilt, and a few tips how to juggle all the parts that make up modern life. There's loads to absorb, to hear, and to learn from her, as well as to entertain in whatever you're doing. I hope you enjoy. I think in all my time of uh, interviewing people, I'm ne- I have never interviewed somebody in a home office who has a European flag behind them. That is the poshest Zoom setup ever. Emily O'Reilly, um, Ombudsman Emily O'Reilly, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's, it's lovely to be speaking to home. Tell me about the European flag and uh, have you been based in your home office a lot recently or have you been going into, um, into the EU? Uh, Well, yes, my office uh, is uh, based in Strasbourg and there's also an office in Brussels, but the apartment is in in Strasbourg and uh, this is it. You can see a lot of mess left and right of me, but this still looks good, I think. Uh, So I have the flag. I even have a small one as well that I I, I, I take with me when I I go to other venues. Um, So, yeah, during during the pandemic, uh, I was myself and my husband were here. Uh, full-time in Strasbourg from uh, around September of last year until July of this year. So it was the first time that we had spent that concentrated time in in, in Strasbourg together and, and without any children either. So uh, anyway, here I am. I went home for a few weeks at, uh, in the summer, came back at the beginning of September and, uh, and we continue. Great, great. And so do you think you'll be going back to a more public working life soon or have you already started yeah i mean i'm beginning to move about again um a couple few weeks ago i was in paris um met with uh the um, head of the oecd which was really interesting they do a lot of work on transparency ethics issues and so on that sort of complements or mirrors the work that we do I met with the head of the European Banking Authority, which is one of the agencies uh, which I monitor and take complaints in relation to them. Not that there are that many, but um, if there are, I deal with them. And then I've just come back um, from uh, Vienna uh, this week where I was speaking at uh, Fundamental Rights Agency conference and meeting with the uh, Austrian ombudsman. Now, that all sounds very glamorous, but as you know, Melanie, I hate flying. I do fly on occasion, so I basically walked to Vienna from Strasbourg. Um, well, I took the train, obviously, but I'm just <laughs> discovering just how big Europe is. So I went <laughs> to Frankfurt, Frankfurt to Vienna, and then sort of back a slightly different way. But you do see a lot of the countryside. Well, I'm, I'm sure you've seen a lot of Europe and this is something I'd love to, to pick up on because I, I'm dying to hear about your career story. But if we can throw a few nuggets in along the way, it would be great. And you have been an incredibly brave woman for somebody who is based in Europe, is from Ireland and hates flying. Yes, indeed. And when I when the possibility of, of running for European Ombudsman came up in 2013, I mean, I rejected it out of hand uh, initially uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, the primary one was the family, the children were so very young. My youngest at that stage had just gone into secondary school. I had two others in secondary school and the others uh, in college. So it didn't seem quite the ideal time. I hate flying, I don't like it. I do fly occasionally. And of course, naturally in, in Europe, and if you have any sort of job in, in Brussels, as they say, or in Strasbourg, there, there is an amount of travel. Uh, taking place and, and also there was the um, the election campaign uh, itself you know which really didn't uh, 
didn't sound very enticing. But anyway, I won't go into all the details of how I made my decision, but I made my decision and uh, then I, I, I set out. And, and it was, you know, it, it was a difficult few months uh, because you didn't, it wasn't like a normal job interview, you know. I mean, every day you were meeting different MEPs of different political stripes and trying to pitch your career and qualities in a way that was going to find favour across the board without being either hypocritical or over the top or whatever. Uh, that was difficult. Also, flying. Now, at times, I, I chose not to, to fly and I would take the boat from Dublin to Holyhead and then the train from Holyhead to London and then the Eurostar to Paris and then stay overnight in Paris and then take the train to Strasbourg. So, yeah, but you do get a lot of reading and swatting done on those, <laughs> on those long journeys, you know. Oh, my goodness. And do you still travel mostly? You were saying yes, you, you use the train when you're in Europe now. Well, when I came back um, at the beginning of September, I came back with my poor youngest daughter. I mean, she just started uh, uh, college in, in Leiden University. So we decided or I decided we would travel together fly to Amsterdam and I mean the poor child I think she was just horrified at the idea of having to fly with me not because she doesn't love me in my company uh, <laughs> I think she does but you know neurotic mummy in in the seat beside her um, but anyway I always choose a, an evening flight so I can legitimately down a fair amount of wine and uh, the flight was very smooth and uh, I did remonstrate with the Aer Lingus wonderful stewards who did not have any potato crisps on board, um, which I thought was quite cruel of them. Um, but they were lovely. It was a very calm flight. Uh, Ella was delighted that she survived it. And uh, that was it. So that was kind of my flight for the year, really. So <laughs> since then, wherever I've been going, it's uh, it's on the train. Oh, my goodness. Well, Emily, I'm of a vintage that I know that um, a job in Europe wasn't your first career. Your first career, obviously, was as a highly esteemed journalist. Um, so could you go back to the beginning of your career and tell us what was the original plan and how did it all map out? Well, I did, um, you know, I, I did a BA in college, French and Spanish, and I did the HDIP and I, you know, you obviously teach for a year when you're doing the HDIP and, um, but during that year, I'm not, no, I spent the following year teaching in, in an English language assistant in a lovely school, little school in the, the south of France. And it was during that year, I really started to think about what I wanted to do. And I realized that the people that I was attracted to in college, the things I was attracted to, politics, current affairs, all of that, were leading me towards journalism. But you know, I hadn't been involved in it when, um, in, in college at all. I mean, you know, the likes of Fintan O'Toole and the late and wonderful Mary Raftery were the star journalists uh, in those days and the star deba debaters so I, I certainly at that stage wasn't in that league um so i remember going into what would be the equivalent i guess of foss um you know now mm -hmm. or panko i think it was uh, when i came back and uh, i just went in and i said hello i'd like to be a journalist please and um so i had an interview and they said well why don't you learn to type uh, and then perhaps you can become a production assistant. And that was not my career goal. And I decided, well, I'm never going to learn to type because if I don't learn to type, then nobody can hire me as a typist. Now, in those days, a lot of young women, you know, the options were, you know, the bank, um, uh, secretarial courses were a big thing. We're uh, talking early 80s, am I right? Yeah, oh, I wish. Um, uh, late 70s. <laughs> late same, 70s, same. Early 80s, yeah. <laughs> there, thereabouts. Um, yeah, so I, I was, uh, you know, I remember being very, very strong on that because I, I knew that there was potential um, to, to, to go in, into a, an area and then even have to struggle harder to get to where I wanted to. So anyway, they they put me on a kind of career development course. I ended up, not ended up, I got my first internship at Woman's Way magazine, editing the Which is still story, going. Which is still going. And it was a wonderful um, um, uh, education in, in editing and, you know, just a, a, sort of the, the fundamental tools of, of the work. And from that, I, well, they actually offered me, that was owned by Smurfit uh, Corporation mm. at the time. And uh, they had quite a number of magazines, including a magazine called Parents Magazine, which was in, in London. And within a few weeks of, of working in Women's Way, they had offered to train me as an editor um, in London. 
And I look back now and thinking, why the heck did I take that, <laughs> that offer? Because when you think about it, at that time, it was it was incredible. But I I didn't want to go down that that particular niche, you know. I mean, I was taking mm. very brave or very stupid decisions at the time. So when I turned that down, I also got a, um, a kind of an internship with the Sunday Tribune, which was then edited by uh, Conor Brady, who later became yep. the Irish Times. I became their education correspondent immediately. The worst education correspondent in the history of the world. Really. I remember what age would you have been as an education correspondent? About 22. Yeah, just out of education. <laughs> just out of education. Um, and I remember, God bless him. I mean, I remember going to Connor one time and saying to him, I keep getting all these letters uh, from people and organizations. And, and he said, Emily, they're called press releases. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> That was that was the level, but they obviously saw that I could do uh, something, and then um, then I, I stayed on and stayed in the Sunday Tribune for a while, and then I had various jobs, Irish Press political correspondent, which I absolutely loved because I just loved daily journalism, and you know uh, Charlie Hoy, the late Charlie Hoy was still around. You had all sorts of scandals and tribunals and the amazing presidential election campaign of Mary Robinson and all of that. Uh, I also had the opportunity to work in the North, that uh, would have been sort of uh, when, and this is before I joined the Irish Press, it was kind of late 80s, so when the troubles were still fairly troubling, and that was an incredible experience as well, um, so that, that, that was it, so that, that, that became, that, that was my career for, for 20 years, and then the 90s I started having all the, all the babies, uh, so it was uh, combining. I was about to say, you met your husband through your career. I did indeed. A, a very efficient use of time. Well, absolutely. Multitasking. What can I say? You know, so Steve, Stephen was working. He was a newspaper designer. I don't think they have that classification anymore. But anyway, Stephen was working the Sunday Tribune and we met. And um, it was funny then, but then when we when we were living together later, we were married. Whenever we got the Sunday papers, I'd read them and Stephen would measure them, you know. And, uh, uh, it, was, it, was, it was this perfect... Uh, Each to their own. <laughs> Each to their own. Yeah, they say opposites attract. So anyway, that works. Emily, do you think? Um, I mean, looking back now to your early years, were you, you know, were you academic? Were you an intellectual type of child? Well, I, I think uh, I, I was. Yeah, I, I was very bright. You know, certainly in in, in national school. Uh, you know, I was generally top of the class and all of that. Then things started. To, dip a little bit in secondary school when I discovered boys and uh, got a little bit distracted and not very engaged and um, college was okay but I, I certainly didn't shine um, you know I, I think sometimes I was probably somebody who could have benefited from going to college later um, you know I look back now and I see you know one of my, my youngest daughters having a really really good academic career and I almost kind of envy her uh, in a way I you know I, I see in her the the one that I I might have been but actually I think the fact that I didn't do that well academically at that at that point um was kind of helped me because it might have you know I, I just kind of had to look at something different and, and you know journalism was something different and I, I made a you know for me personally, it was just a wonderful, wonderful, happy, happy career. Uh, and had I, you know, uh, my academic uh, credentials gone to my head, which there was no danger of at that point, <laughs> I might have done something else, which would not have been as satisfying. So anyway, that's what I comfort well, myself. Well, I think probably the day you walked into ANCO and the decision not to learn how to type was one of those great sliding doors moments because it brought you into a whole, your whole life. Um, and then you decided to have five children. And were you still keeping up a career? Melanie, with this God thing? decided. What are you saying? <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. Yes. Um, I'm not saying that that was in the, in, the, in the plan. But it's funny. I mean, one of the things I think that might be slightly unusual about my life is that I, you know, we hear an awful lot of people agonizing about the career life balance and all mm. that it was never something that I really gave a moment's thought to it was certainly when I was when I was younger or even when I started having the babies I just assumed that things would work out um you know but I mean everybody is wired differently you know uh 
And I just, I, I'm not somebody who sees the obstacles. Uh, I just see the lovely far horizon, you know, um, and, and head to that and sort of take my glasses off and everything else is a blur uh, in between. But, but I think as well, you know, I mean, I, I say to, uh, you know, with my children, I mean, my, I was the only first one of my family, either on my father's side or my mother's side to go to college. Uh, and that was a big deal. And my parents were enormously proud of the fact that I went to college and that I succeeded uh, subsequently. And that meant a lot to them. And um, they, so therefore, I mean, I, I, even when my children came along, I, I didn't think when, when their lives began that, that mine ended or that my career should, now look, it wasn't easy looking back, you know, when I think, sweet God, how did we do it, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and when the pandemic happened, I mean, my heart went out to families struggling with small children and teenagers. I mean, uh, most of my, co- a lot of my colleagues are very young and they have small families and, you know, if ever there was a good time for the pandemic to happen with myself, Stephen, it was now because, you know, the children were pretty much uh, grown up. Um, so it, it was, but I never, you know, I never, I never agonized about it. Uh, I mean, I, I just felt, well, if, if I ever even thought about it, well, why would I not? If, if I have been given a talent and if I have been educated and if it meant so much, that's what my parents' life, you know, was put into helping us and enabling us. I didn't think that was going to end when, when I got married. But am I right that you carried on working a full-time job in journalism up until child number five? I did. Um, I did. Uh, That's a lot of juggling. It's a lot of juggling. Well, in a way, journalism made it easier because I had wonderful employers. And to be honest, they didn't care where I worked or how I worked or what time I was working at as long as I produced the goods. So as I said before, I could be sort of you know, breastfeeding at midnight and writing a column and, you know, um, as I said as well, not necessarily my best columns, but... But equally, you were yeah. still handing in a column, regardless of what circumstance or what time you were yeah. you were doing it. Yeah, and we were supporting a family, so, you know, the incomes mattered, um, mm. definitely. Uh, and there, there was a point uh, when, you know, when the financial crash happened and... Uh, my uh, husband, uh, you know, he, he had been in, in, in publishing and you know that, that that went all up. So, you know, my salary became became very important. And I, all, but I was always very seized of the idea that if I had chosen to have five children, which is quite a lot, then I had enormous ethical personal responsibility towards them and towards my husband uh, in terms of that, because it was largely me that wanted them. Um, not that my husband doesn't adore each and every one of the little darlings, but, uh, you know, it was very much my my decision. Uh, and so therefore, you know, okay, you, you've done me not right, you you support that now. And I felt mm. very strongly about that. So uh, I did. And in, in those olden days, uh, Melanie, we only got, you know, 12 weeks maternity leave. But at one point, I, I had been editing McGill magazine and I had left and the only my only job at the time was uh, writing column for the Sunday Business Post, and um, I had Ella, and she was born by a cesarean uh, section, and she was fine, thank God. And I was writing a column like two weeks later. I mean, the newspaper wasn't forcing me to do it, but like I felt, well, I I I have to do this. Now the landscape is is very different, obviously, and and that's good. But uh, you know, it was it was twelve weeks, and um, and back you went, uh, and that was. <laughs> Well, I have to say, what I admire about you is I'm sure there are so many people who go into something, whether it be children or anything else, with the idea being, I have made this decision, so I'm going to stand up for it and I'm going to follow through on it. Actually doing it is a completely different thing. And I would imagine, uh, you know, when you have no sleep, <laughs> loads of responsibility, both at home and both in, in, in a career. It must be huge character building stuff. So where does that resource come from? What sort of conversation do you have with yourself? Or can you remember back to those days when you were sleep deprived and maybe you were freelancing? So things maybe were a lot less solid than they would have been had you had a regular employer. Yeah, no, for most of the time I would have had been having, I mean, I had my first uh, in between my interview 
for the um, post of political correspondent for the Irish press and my accepting the job, I got pregnant. <laughs> so um, that was the great happy news I had to tell my new employers uh, when, uh, when, when that happened. No, look, there were times when I was a complete mess, you know, um, kind of sleep deprived, uh, probably not looking after myself very well, um, all, all of that stuff and, and just kind of trying to keep the whole thing together. But in my husband, I have a wonderful, wonderful partner. And, and you know, there's no, uh, you know, you do this housework and I do, I, you know, it's, it's not like that. Uh, mm. And, and he, he was wonderfully supportive, but it was more the flexibility around uh, journalism. Uh, even though I was, you know, full-time job, uh, you had flexibility, obviously, during the day. I did not have to be in an office at nine o'clock and leave it at five and get an hour for lunch and, and all of that. And yeah. I mean, I think that is the key to any, you know, working parents life who wants to spend time with the children to have that flexibility it, it really is critical it is the art of the helicopter view i presume being able to look at everything and pull in what you need at yeah, a time you need you know, it. and you kind of but like during that period i wasn't doing anything else i mean there were no hobbies you know there was no golf there was no tennis there was no nothing um eventually when ella was born i i, I formed a, a a book club uh, and, and and that was nice but it was like it was work home and the big shop at Superquin, as it was then known, on a Saturday, uh, and then fighting over who'd put out the bins because it wasn't so much that we didn't want to put out the bins, we wanted to put out the bins because that gave us a break for five minutes <laughs> from leaving children. Uh, Who's going to do it, not not do it? Yes, <laughs> elbow each other out of the way. No, no, it's me. <laughs> you did it last week. Uh, yeah. I love it. I love yeah. it. So, um, so, right, at this stage, I would imagine, the idea of being ombudsman in Ireland was a long way away from your thoughts. So what triggered that active part of the brain that made you think, that's interesting? Well, um, it was it was the nature of the job, actually, because I wasn't just ombudsman. I was information commissioner, access to documents. Uh, I was part of the referendum commission. I was part of the Standards and Public Office Commission and I was part of something else, the constituency commission. Um, so it was a, a, like a little beautiful lucky bag of, of things. And for me, with such an interest in you know, politics and how administrations work and all of that, it was, a, it was a wonderful opportunity. I had been in journalism for quite a long time at that point and I thought, okay, why not? So. So I took the job and it was a bit of a steep learning curve because as journalists, as you know, we have a deep knowledge of certain things and a fairly sketchy understanding of lots of other things. Um, so it was a bit of a deep dive into the world of Irish public administration, but actually the same sensibility I had followed me. You know, I mean, I didn't feel as if I was making a huge mental adjustment in terms of the job uh, because you, I was in the same space as a journalist is. You're in between the people and other actors. Uh, in this case, the public administration explaining one to the other, um, defending one against the other and so on. Uh, so it didn't, didn't feel like I'd entered some strange new planet at all. It felt quite familiar. You were Ireland's first Irish ombudsman. I know also I'm that, that you, you, you've many first female roles in your life. Um, but when you went into the position, were you surrounded by men or were there other women involved in the work? Uh, there were there were some uh, women. Are you talking about the Irish ombudsman? Uh, yes, yeah. yes. Uh, the, the worst, actually at the time, well, in my own office, you know, most of the senior roles were held by, by men. Um, when I did have the opportunity to appoint a new director general, I appointed a woman uh, and we worked together incredibly well. Um, and there were, there was a woman, um, fabulous woman ombudsman in, in the UK, Anne Abraham, who was incredibly feisty, terrifying actually really in, in many ways uh, as the uh, as the UK administration would have found her but but she was um, she was she was yeah it was really it was a it was a good relationship I mean I got a lot of strength from her actually in terms mm. of seeing her operate um, and it was interesting when when she stepped down from a role there had been seven men before her and all of them had been knighted or become lords and ascended to the, uh, the House of Lords. And Anne was the first person who was denied that. Uh, You're that joking. Role. She was the one who had caused the most 
trouble for them, which I thought was was interesting. But she was, yeah, she was she was wonderful. But usually, I've I've sort of inhabited a world of um, of men, really, and navigated that. And it's funny. I've said this a couple of times. When 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 you look back, and I think a lot of older women are now between the Me Too movement and everything else, uh, looking back at events, uh, personalities in our lives and sort of putting them through a different a different reel, you know, uh, a different prism. Um, but so much of what, what happened at that time in the culture was just, we just took it for granted. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's changed, though it still surprises me the extent to which young women um, still don't feel that empowerment and confidence that I would expect them to feel now in the year 2021. Have you any tips for anybody listening to this that is thinking, you know, I, I, it's, it's back to that, that great line about how if men are half qualified for a job, they'll apply. Women need to wait until they're 99% suited. Have you any tips to somebody who's be coming up the line now about literally just doing it? Well, there's also the great line about a woman's right. We need to fight for a right to be just as awful and mediocre a crap as some of the men are, you know? Um, <laughs> that's good. Fabulous. Um, I tell you, sometimes I'm asked about, you know, who your mentors were, who influenced you, who did this, that, and the other. And obviously my, my, my parents were wonderfully uh, supportive, but I didn't come from that sort of professional background in which there was a network or anything like that. So really the, the person I, who I fell back on mostly was myself. Uh, and I think ultimately women particularly have to realize that you are the one you have to encourage, you are the one you have to fix, you are the one you have to motivate, you are the one you have to challenge. It has to come from deep within you. And I can remember a time when I was in kind of mid-teens, early mid-teens, and I was desperately shy. I mean, even when I started my first job in journalism, uh, I, whenever I had to interview somebody, I'd run out to the phone box on the street um, and, and, and interview them. Honestly, this is in Women's Way magazine. I just didn't want anybody listening to me. You know, I mean, that's, that's how bad I was. But I remember something had happened in school. I can't remember what, I can't remember what it was. We were all sitting on the wall, hanging out after, after school, and something had happened. And I remember as clear as day saying to myself, Emily, this isn't doing you any good. You know, I, I had a really strong sense that I needed to... Um, uh get over myself really or so it, it, it was yeah it, it was that battle and I think you have to you know some women say they don't like public speaking or they don't like this and you have to I mean I don't mean just jump into it and do a TED talk you know I mean what I'm talking about is any moment any opportunity that there is uh, as they say, the possibility uh, for you to uh, use your voice, then use it. It'll terrify you the first time, it won't the second, third or fourth time. Uh, I remember when I perhaps, you know, sorry, even as Irish Ombudsman, if I was to make a speech at all, I would uh, have it all written down. Um, and uh, I was giving a talk in, in Vienna the other day, I sat on the stage, no notes, um, and, and went with it. Now, of course, I have more knowledge now than I had back then. But over time, it's like anything, you have to practice, you have to practice, you know, maybe it's a, this 10,000 hours thing, if you want to become a virtuoso, it's something. Um, and, but ultimately, you know, we can all go and whinge and whine about, uh, you know, our, our lot in life, but, but I think ultimately, you, you have to face your own fears and you have to work on them yourself, you're always going to be your, your own best friend, really. Are you somebody who is quite happy to take a little step outside of their comfort zone if you can see an end result in sight? Well, I think that, I think, uh, well, obviously given I have such a fear of lifts, aeroplanes, all of that, um, mm -hmm. I, I think, but I, I think certainly in relation to going for the European job, yes. Um, I mean, I, I, I learned that sometimes what you regret in life is the things that you don't do those opportunities missed. Um, now, obviously you can regret lots of things you did as well, uh, but in this instance, I think I probably would have regretted it. Wasn't the ideal time in many ways, but it has been uh, wonderful and not just for me, but for the family as well. I mean, it opened up new life opportunities for them. My youngest daughter 
came to the European School in Strasbourg for, for a bit. My son had gone to, to The Hague to study, he was going there anyway. But I think that kind of influence of getting outside the comfort zone, even of, of, of Dublin uh, and all of that, uh, outside your tribe, I think was very influential on the children. And one of them is, is in Vancouver, admittedly along with half of Ireland, it seems, <laughs> at the moment. Uh, mm. I, my son is in Washington, and then I have two. Two of my daughters are, are still in Dublin, and then my youngest one has just started studying in in, uh, in in the Netherlands. You know, so it kind of opened that up for them. So, what might my life have been like had I not taken taken that particular um, scary? How, how did that come up? Did I, am I right in thinking you did two sessions as Irish ombudsman? Yeah, I'd, I'd spent 10 years in total. And so the second mandate was coming to an end. And I was wondering, I suppose I was thinking, well, what am I going to do next? I mean, I still had a few years to go, uh, but I had achieved a lot of what I had set out to achieve. The um, FOI Act was being renewed. The Ombudsman's Act was being um, updated. Um, so a lot of things had, had kind of clicked into place. So you know, in that in that sense, it was it was time to move on. Um, professionally, um, personally, you know, obviously there were there were difficulties there, but professionally, it 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 was there. Um, professionally, yeah, it was a good time to move on. And um, I mean, you've spoken a little bit about you know um, uh, fear of flying and everything else, which would have been a a, a big thing to get in the way. But tell me about. Um, basically having to push yourself forward to be voted in for something that that must have been strange and new and difficult irish people don't like doing that irish women especially don't like doing that how did you come around to it well it was uh, i suppose it was either that or lose really um i discovered that the campaign matters uh because there were i know there were a number of well, there were two MEPs, long-standing MEPs, um, one from the centre-right grouping EPP and the other from the the, the left, centre-left grouping, the, the S&D, and these were well-known. They didn't have to bother getting signatures at the beginning. It was so easy for them. They could just hoover up automatically loads of votes. So I had to sort of insert myself in there and therefore the campaign mattered and therefore that personal thing of knocking on doors, making appointments, talking to people. Um, but one of the things I, I think I'm good at is, is making that sort of personal connection, you know, and um, finding something that, that, uh, that, that we can sort of have a chat over and that could be anything. And usually when I go into an MEP's office, there, there might have been something happening in, in their country's life at the time, there might have been an election on or something, or I'd ask them about their family, sometimes they'd be open, sometimes not so much. Um, and so try and find some thread of connection. And it wasn't forced, it's genuine. I mean, I know I, my husband knows that I can sit beside somebody for two minutes and I would have their entire life, you know, there. And I, I used to, because my, I my, the gang of three, three wonderful uh, men who were at the time, the MEP's assistants who became my campaign team. And they would, you know, I, I come out and I'd be able to say, you know, do you know the best recipe for Loganberry jam is actually this? Because according to this MEP, Blah, 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 blah. But I remember going into one uh, MEP, he was from more the Eastern European states and um, conservative. And he had my CV in front of him and uh, <clears throat> he, uh, he said, uh, do you know the thing I like most about your CV? And I was wondering, was it this journalism award? Was it becoming the first uh, Irish, almost one female Irish artist? And he said, that you have five children, you know? <laughs> Yeah, well, okay. <clears throat> At last, they're proving their worth. Um, <laughs> but, but I remember as well going in to talk to uh, to one MEP, and, and I, I thought he was gay, and um, I, uh, he wasn't, as it turned out. But I started this big thing about Ireland's civil partnership and being the, and looking at me. Why are you Why are you telling me about this? You know, and when I came out, I discovered I'd had the wrong MEP. You know, so. <laughs> But it, it was, um, and it was <clears throat> climbing lots and lots of stairs because I don't hate lifts as well. It's this fear of being trapped. So my Aidan O'Sullivan, who's my chef de cabinet, he, he was working in parliament at the time and, and uh, he, was, he was my campaign manager. And he'd tell me something like, well, the good news is we've got this you know, senior MEP and an interview with him, great. The bad news is because they're senior, they, they're, they're on a really high floor in the parliament, you know, so the drill was I would go into the kind of the, the stairs thingy and Aidan would take my handbag and we'd climb up 
13 flights of stairs. And just before we got out, he would very rapidly give me back my handbag. And then we'd come out, you know, panting, you know, <laughs> breathless and, uh, and, and do the interview. Um, so I did that many, 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 many times. And, and it worked because I remember there, there were some candidates in there who were, who were excellent and certainly would have given me a run for my money, but they didn't campaign. And, you know, it did teach me a lesson. Asking people for their votes actually matters um, and respecting them uh, in, in that way. Don't not, not take it for granted. I'm sorry, I don't mean to be disrespectful to the candidates who didn't do that. But, you know, maybe they weren't as anxious for the job or as, 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 as uh, ambitious for it as, as I became. Um, but, but that was it. And then I, yeah, then I won. Well, you also, um, not only do you walk the walk, you climb the climb and, you know, you demonstrated that you wanted their vote, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I knew once I got into it uh, that there was only, you know, there were two doors at the end of this and, and one was one was win and one was lose. Uh, and I was on that, that track and I had to go down. And I also made a calculation, however, that if, if I hadn't won, you know, it wasn't going to be, um, you know, a shameful thing. I mean, people mm. in our, my own tribe would have thought, oh, well, that's Europe and it's complicated and, you know, blah, blah. If they'd even noticed I was running. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it, it wasn't going to be public humiliation um, had I lost. Because you, you do have to protect yourself, you know. When, when you do brave things, as you kindly say, you do have to put some sort of, you know, um, comfort blankets around you, and you do have to, you know, get 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 your head uh, set for um, other possibilities in the game. I can remember you talking before about in Europe the power of the Hiberno handshake. Yes, indeed. Not I so love much that. Last eighteen months, of course, uh, but um, it's for the Hiberno elbow, whatever you're having yourself. Um, yes, exactly. A tap. Uh, yes, I mean, people tend to like Irish people because Irish people are. Um, well, I don't have to explain to you what Irish people are like, but I. It's very funny. I was at uh, an, um, an event at the, the FRA, the Fundamental Rights Agency, and the head of the Fundamental Rights Agency is an Irishman, Michael O'Flaherty, and actually one of the people who was speaking at it, who's uh, the special envoy for human rights to the EU, um, was uh, Eamon Gilmore, so it was a real Irish event. But anyway, I got talking to this woman, an Irish woman I was introduced to, and we realized we knew each other and I knew her brother and this, 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 and this, and this. And anyway, my German colleague is beside me and she's kind of rolling her eyes to heaven, you know, like, oh my God, here we go again. Bloody Irish, always trying to find the connection. And then the Irish woman started talking to my, my colleague and she said, where are you from? And she said, oh, my father used to work in, oh, that's where I went to school. <laughs> so I turned to her and he said, you see? Um, so yeah, and I think Irish people, Okay, we had the great unhappiness during the financial crash and all of that, but generally Irish people are well regarded. They're seen as um, practical. They're seen as uh, yeah pragmatic. They're seen as um, generally nice to be around, uh, and uh, they they don't annoy people perhaps as much as as uh, as others might. And I have to say the the the, the chaps and chapesses and everybody else in the Department of Foreign Affairs do do an excellent job i have to say yeah um, yeah um, um, can, can i ask you um you know you, you you're now in your third term um yeah. as european ombudsman at this stage you've put in the ten thousand hours where do you think your strengths lie and what areas do you like to delegate out of the job I, I think I remember when I when I went for, for for this particular job because of my experience in journalism because of my experience since ten years and as, as almost when I remember thinking to myself this is the first job I've ever applied for that I'm absolutely certain I can do and do well uh, I mean I had a very clear vision of, of where I wanted to uh, take the office what I wanted to do make it more visible relevant all of that all of which I think it will be generally agreed agreed I I, I have achieved uh, and I could. I knew the big building box that needed to be there. And then I also knew I needed a core team of people who absolutely got me, got the vision, put them in place. And um, once that was there, the thing almost ran by itself. Uh, I had excellent people around me, a core team. I don't think you ever need that many in, of your insider team, but you need mm. people that you can 
absolutely trust and are absolutely married to whatever it is you want to agree with that, uh, who share the strategy and, uh, and that. But I mean, that comes from, you know, decades of experience. Uh, I remember I gave it a, a kind of an ad hoc talk there recently at something, uh, you know, didn't speak, spoke without notes, uh, you know, whatever, no problem. And some of my colleagues said to me afterwards, you know, God, I'd, I'd love to be able to do that. And I said, look, I, I'm 63, you know, if I can't do it now, I'll never be able to do it. And I said, look, that, that didn't come easily to me. I remember when I was sort of 30s or so, you know, in journalism, even as ombudsman, being really impressed by Mary Harney, because uh, Mary was a wonderful speaker. She'd had that debating um, thing in in, uh, in 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 Trinity, but leaving that aside, I think it came it was natural. And I would watch her at events, standing up without notes, and thinking, I would never be able to do that. How does she do it? And a lot, many decades after Mary was able to do it, I was able to do it. But it was just by taking it step by step, doing a little bit, lifting your head every now and then from a set of notes and trying to, you know, extemporize mm. uh, and, and seeing that, well, that's successful. Maybe the next time I'll do it for a few paragraphs or then maybe I can dare do this without any notes or just with a, a PowerPoint uh, and, and, and go from there. So, so it's, it's step by step, you know, it's, it's, it's a process um, that you learn, but, but you have to take that, those initial first few steps. Yeah, yeah. And um, can I ask, I mean, you've had such an amazing and an interesting career in some in all the various stages. Are there any parts that just went by too quickly that you'd like to go back and relive or like to do something differently with or even just extend more of what you have to leave behind? Well, I think probably my favourite time in journalism was, was was in the Irish press. I love the immediacy of it. I love the fact that you were sort of inside the ropes, uh, so to speak, at, at, at big events and, and all of that. Um, that that was great fun uh, and really, yeah, a really interesting time. Um, I, I think probably when I was Irish almost, when I, as I talked about the learning curve, um, I mean, it, I think it took me a while to get into my stride uh, but I mean, that was going to happen, but it meant that at least by the time I came out the other end after 10 years, I was, you know, I could hit the ground running in relation mm -hmm. to the European Ombudsman uh, job, you know. Um, I think there was more I could have done with the with the Irish Ombudsman's role. I think I managed to achieve a, a fair amount, but kind of looking back, I think I'm sorry I didn't, you know, know more, be more aware of certain things at, a, at an earlier point, but you know, uh, that, that was that was the way it worked, and I think. It, it, well, you gave it huge visibility. I mean, you absolutely did that when you when you stepped in. Immediately, you elevated the uh, the position. And um, can I ask you, Emily? You know, uh, over there in 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 uh, Strasbourg or Brussels, wherever you may be, um, on quiet midweek evenings, what do you miss about home? What do you miss about Ireland? Well, I'm fortunate to love to live by the sea. I live in a house, uh, so obviously the sea. But actually what I miss most um, is um, our, the, our last uh, child who was still kind of with us through the pandemic period when we went home was, is Ella. And uh, uh, so she and I love um, <clears throat> quiz shows. Uh, so snuggling up with the couch. I'd love to say it was all university challenge, but no, it wasn't. It was um, it was pointless, and I actually have a list of pointless and and uh, Richard Osman's House of Games. Have you watched Richard Osman's House of Games? You should. It's so clever. Uh, I've caught one or two of them, and you're right. Whenever it's on, it's definitely one you you put down the zapper for, isn't it? Then there's the chase. Have you watched the chase? That's. Uh, I think everyone, even my dog, watches the chase. Yeah. Okay. Well, I rest my case. You know. It's, <laughs> It's, it's wonderful. So I, I miss that time with Ella, pretending that we can actually answer more than two questions in an entire series of University Challenge, you know, and um, planning which Oxford College should go to in the future, which mummy should have gone to had she bothered to study a bit more. Um, and I, I miss, I miss, I miss, I miss, I miss British television, to be perfectly frank. Um, I'm sorry, everybody who's now very cross with the those people over certain things that are happening now. Uh, but I did great television. Uh, I miss the, the channel for arts. I love um, Portrait Artists of the Year, Landscape Artists mm. of the Year, fabulous. So that, that's what I miss, that sort of on the couch with a glass of wine and, and, and the remaining bits of my family are still with me um, watching stupid quiz shows. <laughs> so 
On the other hand, then, when you have had a really, really stressful day or a day in the heels or a day planes, trains and automobilings, um, how do you enjoy unwinding? How do you shake the day off? Well, I'm going to be pure image reader here now. I'm sorry. Uh, Thank you. Say Yes, I do yoga. I do yoga uh, and I do that. But actually during the um, during the pandemic, I also started dabbling a little bit in art and I started doing some online watercolor. Uh, wow. And it was, I had absolutely zero talent for it in, in, in school. But in those days, um, you had a choice between doing Latin or art or domestic science, as they called it then, a science. And if you were on the nerdy side of the class, you you, you didn't do art and you didn't do domestic science, which I think is a great pity, really, because I think mm. you much more rounded. But um, yeah, so I, I did that. And it was actually, I'm still doing a bit of it. It's it's trying to challenge myself to see, you know, we all, I think with artists, we think it's, it's a wonderful gift and generally it is. But can you actually teach yourself to become competent to a certain level? So that's that's a... A little challenge I have now when I'm doing it I just forget about everything else um, and so have you kept it up have I what have you kept it up now that things have, aren't yeah, quite yeah, as locked down I have um, I, I'm doing a little course in in color mixing because I realize you can't just you know sit in front of an easel and just do the big thing in watercolor you have to learn boring things like how to mix greens and how to mix other colors and you know your primaries and all that basic stuff so it's it's sort of I realize that um you know, I possibly don't have enough decades left to make it to the RHA annual exhibition. But if anybody is listening uh, and they want an Irish equivalent of the Salon des Refusés, well, yeah, <laughs> do look. They, they need look no further. Um, gosh, well, we'll be looking forward to seeing because, my goodness me, if you can manage to do with paint what you've done with words and what you've done with communication through the years, I think I think we've got a bit of promise here. Last question, because please goodness, everything is coming back to normal. Everything is opening up. We're all hopping on planes or trains a little bit more frequently. Um, where is best for a working lunch, either in Strasbourg or in Brussels, Emily? Where where will we find you? Well, I hate lunch. Um, I, oh. I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't do lunch. I just think it's a wasted event. I mean, I, I, I I, yeah, this sounds a bit odd. I mean, I prefer to meet somebody breakfast or for a coffee. Oh, you know, I do. I mean, I do eat lunch. But no, so but if you were going to do for a social, for a social or a working for a meal. Social, uh, the European Parliament, she said boringly, but I, I must give a shout out to this amazing little bistro on the corner down there called Bistro d'Antoine, uh, which is a gorgeous classic uh, French bistro. And it's kind of a bit like, because it can be hard to make friends and can be hard to make the connections that we can make in Ireland. But that's a place where it's the old line and cheers where everybody knows your name, you know, or, or certainly how much white wine you want to drink in an evening. And uh, so so that is lovely. But generally, in terms of, you know, lunch businessy thing, I I don't really do that. And if I do, it might be in the European Parliament or I generally would prefer to have coffee or a, or a proper meeting with water. I have to say, I think coffees are great because... You spend your whole time at a working lunch, being polite, having the chat, and it's very hard to get around to why you're actually there. Well, it can be because you have all the faff about, you know, getting the table and then ordering and then eating and trying to talk and then the bill and then mm. all, all of that. Um, uh, so I, I think it can be, and I'm not sure, do people do lunch as much as they used to? I don't, I'm not sure that they do. Um, possibly not. Yeah, possibly not, but, but yeah. yeah. But but because I moved between Brussels and Strasbourg as well, you know, I'm not as f familiar really with 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 the with the you know the, the places where people people necessarily go. Uh, but in, well, in, I it's lovely. Sorry, the, the call just dropped there for a minute. Um, I was just going to say, well, Emily, I hope that next time you help on an Aer Lingus flight, whenever that might be, they have tato crisps back on the menu for you because I think that would be one good way to entice you home. Will we be seeing you? Will we be seeing you coming back to Ireland anytime soon? Yes, absolutely. I'll be home at Christmas, and my darling eldest daughter got engaged um, last year during the pandemic, and um, her gorgeous fiance, my future son-in-law, she said threateningly, um, actually rang us up several weeks before he proposed to Jess to ask for her hand in marriage. You know, from Stephen and I, which was very, very sweet. Uh, so she's getting married next August. I haven't seen her in nearly two years. Um, so she's coming home 
at Christmas um, and I'm really really looking forward to that and we are going wedding dress shopping um, oh my goodness. on the 17th of December so I have to be out of here by then it's something I'm greatly looking forward to it'll be like the communion dress shopping only slightly bigger sizes you know um, it'll be so emotional and it'll be lovely and also the fact that you'll be back in Ireland after a long old time to be able to settle back I know you were saying you were back briefly yeah I yeah. hope it's a really special occasion it, it will be, yeah, very much so. And I'm looking forward to that. I mean, we spent Christmas here um, last year. Our two youngest came over. They quarantined for five days before we let them near us and they did all the testing and, and all of that stuff. Uh, we were we were very careful. That was lovely. It was a different Christmas, but Christmas is just with, it just really is just the people, you know. Um, it's so true. And and it's absolutely true. So it'd be lovely to, to see Jess and the rest of them uh, at Christmas. Right. Plan for the wedding. Oh my goodness. And then it's 2022. Um, Ombudsman Emily O'Reilly, I know how busy you are. You've given us so much of your time. Thank you very, very much. And thank you to your fabulous squad who work with you for making all of the logistics so easy. We're um, eternally grateful. And again, you've given us loads to chew over. You, you'll keep me, I think it was 2013 you spoke at the Image Networking Breakfast. We're now 2021. So I've enough to do me until 2028, but I can't promise I won't be back before then. Okay, okay. Thank you so much, Melanie. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And yes, thank you to my fabulous squad um who do so much to support me i get the easy bit you know to do the front of house person while while they do the heavy lifting uh behind the scenes but i'm deeply grateful to them and thank you melanie and, and to everybody who may listen to this and to your wonderful squad as well so thank you very much great thank you emily and have a great day I hope you enjoyed that fascinating insight into a very dynamic life and gathered a few tips along the way Thank you again to Ombudsman Emily O'Reilly for being so open and so honest and for finding time for us in her incredibly busy calendar. Thank you to her team and thanks also to our team at Image, Sophie Power, Simone Kennedy and Bill O'Sullivan for their help in producing this podcast. As mentioned earlier, Work, Rest and Slay is the podcast of the Image Business Club and if you think we're worth a follow, a rating or even a review, we'd be over the moon. If you're already a member of our business club, we hope you're getting plenty from it and are ready for a liftoff year in 2022, when hopefully we'll be bringing back our live events to offer you plenty of what we call edutainment and networking opportunities. We all really, really miss them. And I think it's the human touch that really makes a difference. If you'd like to find out more about the business club and the benefits of membership, see image.ie forward slash business club. We've so much to offer in terms of content, how to events, podcasts, masterclasses, the works. So thank you so much for listening and have a great month.